If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 20. Troy, could you grab those uh, lights on the back for me? Thank you. Make sure you all stay awake this morning. That nice uh, low-lighted ambiance. Looking forward to continuing our conversation, our time through John chapter number 20, through the resurrection of Jesus. Um, When we consider last week... Really, it was more of an introduction to the resurrection as we saw the responses to the empty tomb. And as we continue our way through the Gospel of John, we're now going to see some additional context and details layered into that empty tomb where Christ is going to reveal himself to really three different specific settings within chapter 20. And we're going to see through this Uh, remainder of chapter 20, The Implications of a Risen Lord. That's the title of this morning's message, The Implications of a Risen Lord. And before we dive into the text and before we dive into any outline or or commentary, uh, again, I want to kind of tee this up with the importance of opening in a word of prayer and asking the Lord, the Holy Spirit, Um, to never allow the resurrection uh, to just be a a topic, that the resurrection would never just be um, maybe a point of doctrine or something that we believe, but rather the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it absolutely should 100% change everything. And it is that big of a deal that we serve a, a a risen Savior, And so I pray that our hearts and our minds would be engaged and that we would be to that level of attention, understanding what's at stake if, again, we don't get this resurrection right and we don't understand and internalize the resurrection and its subsequent implications on each and every one of our lives on a daily basis. So let's open in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you this morning that you have sent Jesus, uh, your Son, Uh, to come and to live a sinless, perfect life, and that he came on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. That is us. That certainly was uh, a host of uh, the world back then, but it is is us. It is me. It is each and every one of uh, these men, women, and children that have joined together this morning. And I pray that we would realize the personal and relational nature of Jesus. We thank you that he did not just die and shed his blood, but he did uh, raise from the dead on the third day and that he, as a result, defeated sin, death, and hell, and that we have hope not just to get through this life, but we have hope for eternity because he has defeated those things we can be made alive, and as a result, our sin can be cast as far as the east is from the west, and our relationship with you, Father, can be made whole through Jesus. And the resurrection makes all of that possible. And so I pray, as we've come to worship you this morning, that uh, you would stir us up, that you would awaken our spirit, you would awaken our heart, that our heart would be that fertile ground of, of the soil that would receive the seed of your word and that the word would take root and that as it is 
cultivated and that is, is, as it is matured, it would, it would take root and, and bear fruit for the days to come. Father, we live in a world that needs to find the hope of a resurrected Savior. And you have given us uh, a mission as a result of that reality. And I pray that all those truths uh, would, would come to light this morning as we look into your inspired and errant word and simply desire to hear from you this morning. And so now I pray that you would do a work that I cannot do, that your spirit again would uh, make us like Christ. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen. Again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it changes, changes everything. Here we are in John chapter number 20. Again, to recap, we have arrived on the scene of a tomb with a stone rolled away. We have an absent body of Jesus. We have observed a few misguided conclusions about where Jesus' body is and why. And ultimately, we see a defeated and hopeless response as they decide to simply do what? Go back home at the end of verse number 10. This morning, as we continue our way through these eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, I want to remind us that the Bible itself is really all about this topic. It's all about Jesus. It's all about a risen Savior. And this is, in my opinion, the beauty of what we hold so dear here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, the beauty of expositional teaching and preaching. We have the immense honor and privilege of simply preaching Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. And we must, friends, get that right. We have the privilege week in and week out as we have journeyed through the Gospel of John to unearth the treasures of Christ, to see Him in all of His beauty as He walked and talked and lived on this earth. We have seen Christ, have we not? We've seen Him interact in very personal, in relational ways. We've seen Him do very simple things and we've seen Him do very big and great and mighty things through signs, miracles, and wonders. Certainly we as, as preachers, as, as elders, and also you as, as readers, as you've journeyed along with us through the Gospel of John, I pray that we have seen this unified story of God's redemptive plan of which Jesus is the hero of the story. Have you seen that? Have you seen the Gospel come alive in ways that maybe grew old and dim in your own personal life, I don't know about you, but my heart has been stirred up as we have gone through the Gospel of John. And I've been challenged and encouraged and convicted to live and to walk and to love in a way that Christ only could. And He has equipped us to do the same through His Word and through the promised Holy Spirit that we're even going to see here this morning. And so the beauty of all of Scripture is this, that the Old Testament is looking forward to and prophesying about this same Jesus that we have, over a, a period of months and months, we have gotten to know a little bit better. The Old Testament is looking forward to that promised Messiah. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are doing what? They're testifying 
about the actual, real, tangible life and ministry of this long-awaited for Messiah as he has come on the scene, Christ has arrived. He is Jesus, the Son of God. And then we have the remainder of the New Testament all looking back to Jesus as the conquering Savior and the risen Lord. This is the cohesive beauty of the storyline of the Bible, this redemptive story. So friends, can we not agree that it's literally all about Jesus? And not just all about Jesus, but really it's all about a what? A risen Jesus. That we win. Have you read the last chapter? Although the heel of Jesus is bruised, the head of Satan has been crushed. And there is joy and there is victory and there is freedom in that reality. And so this is, friends, the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we remember Paul's words from last week in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 17? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. It's worthless. It's vain. And you are still in your what? Your sins. So friends, the resurrection is pivotal in our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. And as we continue our way through the Gospel of John this morning, there is so much writing on the validity and the truthfulness of this resurrection. Eternal life and really all the tenets of Christian doctrine, the virgin birth of Jesus, the sinless, sinlessness of Christ, His signs, miracles, and wonders, and ultimately even His substitutionary death all mean nothing if Jesus does not rise up from the grave on the third day. Do we get that? It is, it is that big of a deal. And so friends, without being too sensational, I want to stay, stage this topic of the resurrection with the appropriate sense of urgency that we get it right. From a Christian living perspective, think of it this way, we have no hope. We have no hope to live a successful and God-honoring Christian life if the resurrection is not true. As Andy indicated, the stranglehold of sin is still there. The shackles of sin, the well-worn paths, there's no hope of finding that way of escape if Christ did not feed that sin that clings so closely to us. So friends, do we believe not only the resurrection is true, but do we believe the implications of that resurrection, our own individual personal walk with the Lord? Friends, do you realize the hope that we have in the resurrection? I don't have to settle for sin. I don't have to settle for the complacency of a defeated Christian life. I don't have to settle for despair or depression. I don't have to just settle for a mediocre marriage. I don't have to settle for disconnected parenting. I don't have to settle for anything that is less than God's perfect will and plan for my life. Why? Because He is risen. But the question remains this morning as we continue again to work our way through these eyewitness accounts is this. Well, we like Mary and and Peter and the beloved disciple, we continue to stare into an empty tomb with all of its rightful implications that we've just described and simply do what? Go home. Far too often, I 
believe that the Western Christian church has just been staring too long into an empty tomb. Not realizing the true Holy Spirit power that we have within the tenets of that reality. And as a result, we've tried to replace the power of the Spirit, the power of the resurrection with programs, with cute fads, with lights and everything else that goes along with that. All the while settling for something less than what God has planned, not only for us individually, but ultimately for his bride, the church. Too many of us, myself included, this morning, I pray, need to wake up spiritually to the implications of a risen Lord and stop reading much of the Bible as if it were just another nice little story of morality and we need to wake up to the reality that He has risen and as such, it changes everything. My life, my family, my marriage, my job, my responses, my reactions, my thoughts, my choices, my relationships, how I spend my time, my money, my skill sets, my resources. You see, friends, the implications of the resurrection are never-ending because it truly does touch every single facet of our life, and not just my life. The implications of the resurrection have and will continue to touch every facet of every life and that for the history of all mankind, past, present, and future. So friends, this is the big idea of the resurrection this morning because Jesus has risen from the grave. We can wholeheartedly believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and as such, experience abundant life now and for all eternity. Let me read that one more time. Here's the big idea of our text, verses 11 through 31. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, we can wholeheartedly believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and as such experience abundant life now and for all eternity. In our text this morning, friends, we will see Jesus revealing his resurrected body again in those three specific settings. First, we'll see Christ reveal himself to Mary as she comes back to the burial tomb in verses 11 through 18. Secondly, we'll see Christ reveal himself to what the broader group of disciples in verses 19 to 23. And finally, we'll see Jesus's individual encounter with doubting Thomas, accompanied by what the proclamation of the thesis statement of John's gospel that I'm sure we all have memorized at this point through our series of John. And we'll see that in verses 24 through 31. So with that say, let's dive into our first point this morning. First, Jesus reveals himself to Mary and it changes everything. Let's read our text, verses 11 through 18. Chapter 20, verse number 11, follow with me as I read. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. In each of our resurrection encounters this morning, I'd like to observe how each individual or group immediately realized the implications of what they were experiencing at that moment. We're going to see Mary, we're going to see the group of disciples, and we're also going to see Thomas go from a point of despair, uncertainty, fear, and confusion to realizing the true implications of the resurrection on their life. So first of all, what was the emotional state of Mary before she realizes that Christ has risen? So again, let's set the stage of verses 1 through 10. What happened? Mary went to the tomb. Tombstone is rolled away. Her conclusion is what? Somebody has taken the body of Jesus. She runs back to the disciples, tells them, absolutely, somebody has taken the body of Jesus. What happens? Peter, the beloved disciple, they take off running. The beloved disciple outruns Peter, gets there. Sees the linen clothes of Jesus folded up. Peter comes in. They make some conclusions. They go back home. And then Mary, at some point, in verse number 11, makes her way back where? Back to the tomb. I don't know if she was with them. She probably wasn't running. I don't know. We don't know how much time has elapsed from the time that Peter and the beloved disciple were there. But they've gone back home. And Mary finds herself again in a state of mourning back at the tomb of Jesus. And God's word describes her in verse number 11. She stood what? Weeping outside of the tomb. If we can think back to the setting there at Lazarus' tomb, uh, we certainly in detail uh, outlined the Jewish tradition of weeping and, and mourning that they would literally hire outside helpers to work through this traditional process of mourning. And so, literally, when we have this idea of of weeping, we have a Mary who is literally distraught. She is frantic. She is lost and and desperate. She is weeping. Literally, she is wailing outside of the tomb. So, in short, she has lost all hope. The body of Jesus is gone. He's dead. To make matters worse, somebody has stolen him. She finds herself in a very dark an emotional state here at the scene at the tomb. Are you there with her? Can you empathize with the circumstances that she's going through, the conclusions that she's drawn in her mind? And then what does God's word say that she does? She stoops inside the tomb. And here's our first glimmer of hope in this situation that seems very dark and bleak. She stoops inside the tomb while still weeping and she sees what? Two angels sitting where Jesus' body would have been laid, and and they pose a question to Mary. What is that question? Woman, why are you weeping? It's an appropriate question for these angels to ask. Why? Because they have information that at this point Mary does not have, right? The angels know that Christ has what? That he's risen, that he is alive. Mary is still operating on old information, on fake news, if you will, that Jesus is dead and that he has been taken away. 
But these angels, knowing that Christ has defeated sin, death, and hell, and that he's risen from the grave, she simply asks, why are you weeping, these angels? I said she. I didn't mean to say that. These angels say, why have you been weeping, right? Why have you been weeping? They understand what has been done. Mary, again, is still wrestling with what is going on. And simply she responds, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. She says in verse number 13. So again, she has drawn these lines of conclusion in her mind. This is the only thing that possibly could have happened. She's frantic. She's lost. She's desperate. And in this dialogue with these angels, still weeping, she's reminding herself of the hopelessness that she is in. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where somebody asks a question and they have information that you don't have? That's never a fun place to be, is it? I can think of uh, a recent, I guess it's been a few months, obviously, but we had a life group activity of which Justin and Cassandra graciously opened up their home and uh, we went through a kind of a breakout-themed uh, couples night. A lot of fun. Uh, they, they put a lot of effort into that. But they had a lot of information that evening that a majority of our folks that were engaged in that activity did not have. All right, so this breakout activity involved a series of locks, padlocks, and more and more locks. How many, how many were on there? Do you have any idea? It was a lot. Double digits, for sure? Ten? Eight to ten? Locks, right? And so with each uh, lock, there was uh, subsequent clues that led to unlocking the next lock, right? And so on and so forth. And uh, the, the area of the activity was really isolated to this area of the basement. And so everything that we needed to successfully complete this breakout activity was in that room. The problem was, is that it wasn't in plain sight, right? Uh, These things were hidden in the most obscure places that you could even imagine. I mean, they're apparently a lot more creative where to hide things than my brain can even think of, right? I mean, we're talking under this little knickknack taped to the bottom of something inside a housing of, I don't know. I mean, it was unreal, right? And so here we are fumbling around with this lock and these numbers and these codes and trying to piece all of this together and they're, of course, very graciously on the sideline, mocking us terribly the whole time. No, it wasn't that bad. I'm kidding. But, but what they had, what? They had the big picture view. They knew exactly where each little clue was and what it meant and how that lock was to be unlocked and how everything tied together. I and the rest of us that were trying to complete that activity certainly did not. And the frustration that I had at multiple points uh, was quite real. The joy of knowledge that Justin and Cassandra had certainly was real as well. What seemed to be very obvious to them was certainly very confusing and uncertain to myself and the others. And certainly that's kind of where, where Mary finds herself in this situation. She is still hopeless. She still doesn't know how all these details are work to, how they're going to work together. Uh, these angels are operating with information that she doesn't have, and she still remains emotionally distraught. 
So here we have, as we read on in verse number 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Now that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Mary certainly had multiple, multiple encounters with Jesus. Certainly she would be able to recognize Jesus, right? Um, I know Riley well. When Riley walks into a room, when he walks into a restaurant, when he walks into the gas station, and I'm not expecting him to be there, I'm going to recognize right away, that's Riley Swanson. Why? Because, well, of course, he's kind of a tall guy, and, you know, that kind of stands out itself. But I know Riley. I, I know what he looks like. I've, had, I've spent enough time with him that I could pick him out in a crowd, and if he walks in, I'm going to recognize that's Riley. So it's interesting here that Mary, as she turns around and sees Jesus, doesn't have the wherewithal to connect that who she's looking at is Jesus. I think it bears in mind how far really Mary had put out this reality that Jesus could be risen. I mean, she has put that so far out in her mind that it can't possibly ever be Jesus because he is dead and somebody has taken him away. So as Mary looks at Jesus face to face, and I'm sure she's been weeping, she's been crying, so maybe the tears and all the other emotions, maybe that, that facade of that person is a little fuzzy in her eyes, but ultimately she goes on and she doesn't recognize that it's him. Verse number 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Verse number 16, this is beautiful. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. He spoke her name. Jesus spoke the name of Mary and immediately she recognized that who was standing in front of her was absolutely none other than Jesus. There didn't need to be any explanation. There didn't need to be any proof. She didn't have to put her fingers in the nail holes or her hand in the side. She simply heard her Savior, Jesus Christ, speak her name, and she knew it was Jesus. This is, this is beautiful. Does it not remind us of Luke? Uh, excuse me, John chapter 10, verse number three, speaking of Jesus, says this to him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The good and the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, had called Mary his sheep by name, and the sheep heard and joyfully, what, responded. And in doing so, Jesus did what? What did he do? He, he reestablished the personal relationship that Mary thought she had forever lost. She could never imagine that that relationship with Jesus could have been restored after seeing that crucifixion, after seeing his body placed in a tomb, after coming to that tomb, the stone rolled away and the body taken away. She could have never found the hope that that relationship could have been restored until she heard what? Her name. Her name. So here we have in this interaction, these angels, um, there with Jesus, 
In other passages of Scripture, in, in the uh, parallel passages, Mark chapter 16, Matthew 28, we see also in Luke 24, it's actually posed as a question, why are you seeking the living among the dead, right? Here in our text, again, these angels say, Mary, why are you weeping? Jesus asked her the same question, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And all of Mary's questions, all the conclusions that she has drawn about where Christ is in, is at, and, and what happened to his body, all of that is literally crushed. It's fallen along the wayside, and her relationship with Jesus is fully restored. At this moment, Mary is experiencing for the first time, the aha moment of true belief. Do you see it? Do you see it in our text here where Mary's despair is, is turned to hope? We see in 16, uh, verse number 16, what was her response to the voice of her Savior? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Mary was brought from the darkest moment of her life to a rushing moment of life as Jesus spoke her name. Immediately after hearing the voice of Jesus, she recognizes and responds to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. One commentator says this about this scene. He says this, All the love and faith and joy of which her illuminated heart and mind were capable, were poured out into that one word, teacher, recognizing Jesus rightly as the Christ, the long-awaited-for Messiah. Let's look at verses number 17 and 18. Jesus has a response to her response. Jesus said to her, what? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending up to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So in verse number 17 and 18, Mary, Mary immediately responds rightly, but goes on uh, to, to understand the implications, again, of this new information, the implications of this resurrected Savior that she has come face-to-face -face with for the first time. And Christ has tasked her with something very specific. To do what? To go and carry the message that Christ has risen. Verse number 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, and she says what? What's her message? I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So we see the emotional state of Mary prior to the resurrection. What was the emotional state of Mary after she realizes that Christ has risen? Her despair again is turned to hope. Her sorrow is turned to joy. Her loss is turned to gain. Her defeat is turned to victory. You see, friends, when Mary saw the risen Lord, she was changed. She was radically changed. And friends, I would contend that when we see also the risen Lord on the pages of Scripture as the Holy Spirit stirs up our mind, illumines our hearts, we too should be changed as Mary was. And that change results in something very specific. The implications of that change are this. She's been given a mission. She's been given a message to carry out to the disciples. 
We see that in verse number 17 and 18. It says what? But go. Right? Don't we see it there in, in verse number 17? But go to my brothers and say to them. That's the mission. The mission of activity, of, of leaving the scene at the, at the tomb with the resurrected Savior to go. That's the mission. And then ultimately, he gives her what to say, right? And say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's the means. This is, uh, this is ultimately how this mission is going to be accomplished through the speaking of what? The message. And what was the message? I have seen the Lord. So we have the message, the means, and the mission all kind of broken down here in verses 17 and 18. So this wraps up our encounter of Christ with Mary, and certainly it changed everything for her. Secondly, let's look at Jesus revealing himself to the disciples and how it changed everything for them. So what goes on here at the end of verse 18? Mary obeys Jesus and goes and proclaims what? The message. And once again, we have some misguided responses to the realities of what is going on around them. Mary has proclaimed to this group of disciples, I have seen the Lord and he sent me to tell you this. So let's look at the responses of the disciples to this mission that Christ has sent Mary on. Let's start reading verse number 19, verse through verses number 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So what is the response of the disciples before they believe that Christ really has risen from the grave? What do we see there? They are fearful. See the presence of fear. Not only are they fearful, but they're confused and scared. They are hiding, hiding, excuse me, behind what? Locked doors. They're trying to find still a path forward in the wake of this crucifixion. The emotions and the circumstances are still fresh. The proverbial wounds of this traumatic experience are still bleeding. And they're simply trying to make sense of how they, in the damage control mode, find a path forward in life. And here to make matters worse, Mary comes running along, saying that she's seen the Lord, right? And can't you just see the group of the disciples there, right? Again, they haven't connected all the dots of the teaching of Christ in the past, and they're, they're hiding in this room behind locked doors, they're fearful of the Jews. They're fearful that if they went after Christ and they did this to him, certainly we're next, right? So this is the circumstances that they find themselves in. And so it was at that moment that Jesus simply appears in their midst behind locked doors and proclaims what? What was his statement of proclamation? Peace be with you. Peace 
be with you. Jesus immediately speaks directly to the hearts and emotions of these wandering disciples. I think it's interesting that, that Christ chose to speak to peace twice in these five short verses. He says that statement, peace be with you, twice in this dialogue or this encounter with this group of disciples. Why? I truly believe that Christ is calling them to a moment and a spirit of peace for a purpose. And what was that purpose that Christ was trying to settle their hearts so that they could grasp on? That purpose was this, so that they are able to hear, receive, and respond rightly the words of Jesus. Friends, isn't there really something special and unique and literally supernatural about the peace of Christ that sets the appropriate atmosphere for us to do those three things, to set the appropriate atmosphere for truth, the promises, Scripture, the, the nudging of the Holy Spirit, all those things, the peace of Christ sets the, the stage and the atmosphere for those truths to be heard, received, and responded to rightly. Can you think back in a situation in your life where the circumstances of life were swirling around you and they were real and you didn't know where they were coming from and you didn't know the outcome of what those circumstances were going to lead to? And you found yourself at that moment focusing on the circumstances of, of life, the circumstances of those situations, instead of focusing on Christ and the promises of Scripture, you focused on the temporal of the pain, the hurt, the confusion, the fear, the uncertainty. And what did it cause you to do? It caused you in that moment to trust in yourself. It, trust, it caused you in that moment to lean on your own understanding. It, in that moment, caused you to trust in your heart, of which is deceitful and desperately wicked. And it led you astray. Christ, in this moment of uncertainty and fear for the disciples, He says what? Peace be with you. This isn't an uncommon excuse me, exhortation that Christ has given in the Gospel of John. It reminds me of the exchange that Christ had back in chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Christ says to the disciples, what? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. A little foreshadow of, of Thomas here again. Thomas said, even back in chapter 14, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Man, this sounds like a pretty black and white description of Christ speaking to what's about to happen. But yet here again, the disciples quickly have forgotten this dialogue. 
Right? Even then, the disciples were, were feel fearful. They were, they were troubled. The, 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 the life and ministry of, of Christ was starting to climax, and, and the Jews and the religious elite of that day, they weren't going to have any of it, and, and they allowed their emotions to even be stirred up then. And Christ says, peace be with you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I think also of Colossians 3, 12 through 17, where Paul urges us, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ's admonition is to let the peace of Christ be with them. He is calling them away from the pull and the tug of the temporal circumstances. He's calling them to remember who he is and what he has just accomplished as he is standing in front of them in bodily form, face to face. He has risen from the dead. Christ, as he did in his encounter with Mary, quickly moves on to the implications of, his, of this revelation to the broader group of disciples. He's calling them to understand the implications of a risen Lord. Look with me in verse number 21. What does he say? He says in verse number 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What a hope that we have in this following verse that whatever Jesus calls us to, he certainly will equip us with whatever is necessary to complete it. Let's read on to verse number 23. Or excuse me, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So here he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Christ clearly supports his teaching even back in John 14 and chapter 16 on the priority and role of, remember, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit of God to aid the believers in doing the work that the Lord has commissioned them to do. Let's remember chapter 14, verses number five through seven. He says this, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Remember also verses number 25 through 27 of chapter 14. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace 
There it is again. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The peace of Christ. I don't know about you, but you start looking at the headlines of the news. You start looking at the dynamics of a sin-riddled world. And is it not easy in the midst of living the Christian life and raising a family and doing life together? Is it not easy to let our minds wander to a state of fear and uncertainty? When we allow our minds to do that, we've forgotten who Christ is, who God is, that even in the midst of all the uncertainty of these circumstances, as the Son of God being taken and being crucified on the cross, He is sovereign over all of that. Why? Because it is His will. And so what was the response of the disciples after they believed that Christ has risen? They are settled. They are equipped and they even seemingly take an immediate step to obey Christ in their proclamation to Thomas, who was not with them at the end of Jesus' appearance. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. Jesus reveals himself to Thomas, and it changes everything for him. Let's read verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here we are again confronted with yet another case of misguided conclusions that result in a lack of faith on behalf of Thomas. So what's going on here? The disciples eager to catch Thomas up on this late breaking news as they have just seen the risen Lord. They're confronted with a very strong and explicit response of unbelief on the behalf of Thomas. And if I'm the disciples, it takes me back. Because again, I've, I've just seen with my own eyeballs and interacted with Jesus Christ face-to-face -face in his resurrected body. And, and what does Thomas do? Thomas takes it upon himself to kind of set the matter straight and, and get everybody back to reality, we'll call it. He essentially says in these verses, you all are crazy. Right? Verse 25, he literally says what? I will never believe. I will never believe. Unless, and he raises the stakes, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hand, unless I place my finger into the mark of those nails, 
And he even goes a step further, unless I place my hand into his side where the, where the spear uh, poured out water in blood, unless I do those things, I will never believe. Wow. I don't know about you, but that unbelief is, it kind of takes me back a bit. It's harsh. It's a fairly ugly response from Thomas in light of the excitement and the joy of this group of disciples. Friends, a quick little sidebar here. It's important to note the ugliness and the incredible danger of unbelief. Right? Let's, let's say Thomas makes this statement. It doesn't go unchecked. Let's say that, that Christ doesn't come on the scene that, that next time. That seed of unbelief that Thomas is, is planting into the hearts and the minds of these disciples, if not addressed, if, if, if not properly confronted with, with truth, of, of Scripture and with the truth of a risen Savior, that, that unbelief can cause devastating effects for an individual and a group of, of people. And so this unbelief cannot go unchallenged. So it's at that moment that what does Christ do eight days later? He kind of lets Thomas really, to be honest with you, sink into his statement. And I wonder maybe if there is even an exercise for the disciples to say, man, is Christ going to come through here? Is, is he going to reveal himself again? Or, man, were we all just kind of seeing things? Or what? It's eight days later now, right? Thomas has had this incredible statement of, I will never believe. And Thomas is having this glory moment and this I told you so moment in the presence of the disciples. Nothing has happened seemingly for eight days. And then we have what? Jesus appears once again behind locked doors. This supernatural work of the bodily, literal, resurrected body of Jesus appearing on the other side of a locked door. And Jesus makes himself known and immediately addresses them again with the statement of what? Peace. Christ in his perfect way and timing immediately engages with Thomas and responds specifically in detailed fashion to the unbelief and the statements that Thomas has just made. He knows the heart of Thomas. He knows exactly what Thomas needs at that moment. Christ, remember, again, he wasn't known to be there when when Thomas made those statements about the nail prints of his hand and, and the hand in his side. But Christ knows Thomas's heart. He knows exactly what he needs. So, so he appears, he engages with Thomas, and he begins to remind him of who he is. Again, if we remember back at chapter 14, the verses that I just read Thomas has forgotten that Christ is the great I am. He's forgotten that he is the way. He's forgotten that he is the truth. He's forgotten that he is the life, the resurrection life, and that no man comes to the Father but through Jesus. So verse 27, Christ reaches out to Thomas. He engages him and he, and he encourages him to do what? Put your finger here and see my hands. 
and put your hand and place it on my side. He encourages Thomas to not disbelieve, but to believe. And friends, this reality, this message of Christ to Thomas, to don't disbelieve who I am. Don't disbelieve my character. Don't disbelieve of who I am. Don't disbelieve my relationship that I've established with you. But do what? But believe. He's calling us once again to do what? To simply believe. And it's based on his person, his work. It's based on the fact that he is God. It's based on his deity. It's based on the ministry that he has seen. Christ do over and over and over again. He calls Thomas to believe. What was Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. This is a right response. But in the moment, Jesus is still doing what he's, I think he's still teaching his disciples. Let's, let's read it one more time here. He says what? Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you see what Christ is doing here? Jesus knows he won't be with them much longer. He will continue towards a timeline within a few more weeks of leaving this earth and ascending back up to the Father just as he said he would do. And at that moment, on the mount, Jesus will leave them with the great commission to go what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. And he promised them, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the earth. Amen. Jesus knows that there will be more Thomases out there in the world. So Jesus speaks in this moment and reminds Thomas and the other disciples what true faith really looks like. And Jesus' response to Thomas's aha moment of belief, he's actually reminding them of the power of, of everything that he has given to them. I don't know about you, but I, as I look through the Gospel of John, I, I certainly think, man, I would have loved to have been there at that time to see Jesus do these incredible, incredible miracles, signs, and wonders. I, I find myself with this moment of saying, man, if Christ could just put that on display one more time, it would, it would change everything. It would change the world's perception of who he is, and, and they would get it. But it's in that moment that we, we know, as was the case here, that seeing doesn't always mean believing. We saw individuals and multiple crowds deny the claims that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, after doing incredible miracles and wonders right in front of them. And so here, Jesus is reminding them that although I'm going to leave this earth, although you're not going to have the privilege of seeing my life and ministry in motion, you still can believe. Belief is not limited to sight. We still have the opportunity to know Christ and be in relationship with Him on a daily basis. We still have the hope of eternal life and believing that Jesus is who He said He is. Ultimately, Jesus is starting to, again, massage this idea into the disciples, this idea that although I am leaving, you lack absolutely nothing. I have chosen, I have equipped you, and I will be with you always. And so now what? In conclusion, the disciples certainly are confronted with these real implications of a risen Lord. 
Jesus calls them to go to speak of the message of the risen Lord. And that message certainly continues to us. He gives them a pattern and he reminds them, just as the Father has sent me into the world to go and to seek and to save that which was lost, I also send you to do the same thing and to be on the same mission, to share the message that Jesus saves and that he has risen. So as we close this morning, the question is this, will we take the message of John's gospel his person, his work? Will we take the message of eternal life and abundant life to a world that is lost and dying and without hope every single day? John reminds us of the importance of the identity and the personal work of Jesus as he closes this chapter in verses 31 and 32. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, we will continue Friends, will we continue to sit behind the closed and locked doors of our own busy, distracted, and comfortable lives? Or will we truly understand the implications of a risen Lord? Christ, again, will give them this great commission at the end of Matthew where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mission and the message that we have been entrusted with, just as the disciples then are entrusted with, is that we carry a message of life. Abundant life, just as Jesus described in clear fashion in John 10, 10, where he says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. When we see a risen Savior, there are implications of that reality. And the implications are this, that he calls us to go and to share that message, that reality, that truth with the lost world. To offer life in the midst of death to offer hope in the midst of despair. This is what we are as ministers of grace, as ambassadors of Christ, to take that message forward to the world that Jesus has called us to be in. John number 17, as you'll remember. So this is the implications of a risen Lord, John chapter number 20. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you loved us so much, that you have sought after us, you have chosen us, you have changed our identity, ushered us out of darkness into light. You've adopted us into your family. But Father, I feel myself and often too many of us allow this resurrection and, and the realities and the implications of it to just simply fall on, on deaf ears. Too many of us have, have sat on the sideline of comfortable Christianity for too long, not realizing, again, what you have called us to do and to be as a result of you rising from the dead. And so, Father, I pray that the days of comfortable Christianity and complacency and sitting on the sideline, I pray that those would be over. I pray that you would cause us as your gathered church here 
in the community of liberty and, and, and the surrounding areas that you would cause us to be stirred up to have a passion and a love for our community so much so that we would not sit on the greatest message that has ever been told, which is Jesus has risen from the dead and it changes everything. I pray that you would cause us to be stirred up to take that message first into our homes, to share with uh, our spouses and to share with our kids that we would live in the reality of that resurrection power in our daily Christian living. I pray that we would live in that reality as we interact within our neighborhoods and our, 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 our neighbors and our coworkers and in the context of a workplace. Father, I pray that you would stir us up because you have risen and it changes everything. Father, we ask all these things in your holy name. Amen.